0: Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adwoa Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed the living proof podcast as evidenced by the more than 150,000 downloads to date. Thanks to all of you. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. As host of Living Proof podcast series, I hear interesting and thought-provoking information on a regular basis. Periodically, I listen to a podcast that opens a new but familiar vista. And i am reminded of that which makes the profession of social work special i'm reminded of our unique perspective and the value of that perspective in understanding and addressing problems of the human condition through our practice and research we have a rich heritage that is a tapestry of sorts a tapestry that bears witness to the living proof that we make a difference in people's lives the thread we pick up on in today's podcast is on understanding ourselves and improving our work in the midst of shared trauma. Dr. Carol Tasson is an associate professor at the New York University's Silver School of Social Work and recipient of the NYU Distinguished Teaching Award. Dr. Tasson is a distinguished scholar in social work in the National Academies of Practice in Washington, D.C. She is editor-in-chief of the Clinical Social Work Journal and serves on the editorial boards or as consulting reviewer to eight professional journals. Dr. Tusson is author of professional articles and book chapters, co-editor of two books, and executive producer and writer of six training and community service media. Since joining the NYU faculty, Dr. Tasson has delivered over a hundred professional papers and presentations in academic, medical, and mental health settings in the United States, as well as international venues in Asia, Europe, the Middle East, and South America. In this podcast, Dr. Tasson discusses shared traumatic stress, a construct used to describe the experience of mental health clinicians dually exposed to a traumatic experience, both primarily as citizens and secondarily through the trauma narratives of their clients. Dr. Tasson discusses the results and implications of her research examining long-term impacts of 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina on Manhattan and New Orleans clinicians, respectively. Whitney Mandel, PhD student at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, Spoke with Dr. Tasson by telephone.
1: Thank you for agreeing to speak with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I had a chance to read over all the materials that you sent, and it's some really interesting work that you're doing. Thank you. Well, if it's okay by you, we can just jump right in with the first question. Sure. Which is, what is the definition of shared trauma? Well, the formal
2: definition really is one in which the person is suffering both from PTSD as well as secondary trauma so that both are equally weighted. And shared trauma is something that's resulted from clinicians who are exposed now to collective disasters, and it seems we're having more and more of them. So there's more of an urgency for the concept to
1: really be out there. Absolutely, especially given the most recent 9-11 anniversary. Absolutely, absolutely. So how did you become interested in the topic of shared trauma? Well, actually, I became interested with 9-11. I was sitting
2: with a client when the plane flew very close and low over the building. I didn't know what was going on. My client didn't know what was going on. And obviously, we learned a little later. But I think we were trying to interpret the noise in a real benign way. He wasn't sure if it was atmospheric conditions or something. He kept trying to attribute it to something very benign. And I think unbeknownst to both of us what was going on, and when we ended the session, you could see the towers burn very close, actually, within a mile or so of the towers. Yes, yeah, so I it was like so struck by that. I really wondered what did other clinicians experience? What did they feel about the situation? And, and how did their work change as a result of being exposed simultaneously with their client? And that's really what led to the research study that I did.
1: Yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense since it was so close to home literally for you.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's a new construct in terms of being labeled, but the phenomenon is hardly new. Something that people have experienced certainly in Israel, southern Israel with the chronic Qassam uh, rockets that have exploded there for years on and off. This is not anything new, but it's really just a time to really formalize it, and call for kind of a paradigm shift. How does shared trauma differ from PTSD? Well, in terms of the symptomatology, it doesn't differ. The way that we measured shared trauma was taking the PCLC, Post Traumatic Checklist, the civilian version, and also taking Stan's um, professional quality of life, the subscale for secondary trauma, and weighted both equally so that the construct for it is one that involves both. So the symptoms are the same as with PTSD, but the manifestations are will be kind of specific. I guess the best way to explain it is that when you think of PTSD, it's I'm by my primary experience, but when you're in shared trauma, I may be traumatized by my client's narrative of trauma, I can be, and that can trigger my own trauma experience. My own trauma experience can impact how I view what the client tells me. So there's just kind of a fluidity of boundaries that go back and forth, and and it can manifest in a whole bunch of different ways.
1: Yeah, I can imagine so. Now, when you looked in the most recent study, you looked at both respondents in New York and New Orleans, correct? Mm-hmm. So following 9-11 attacks and Hurricane Katrina. What differences did you find between the respondents?
2: Well, here's what's interesting. We're gonna move on to a third study actually in Australia where they've been exposed to bushfires and it's more recent. Both the 9-11 and the Katrina studies were looking at the long-term impact of shared trauma on clinicians. But in Australia, we're gonna have the opportunity to look at when it just happened because these are very recent events. But in comparing the two, I was interested in does it differ? First of all, does somebody's experience differ if they are in it themselves, you know, hence your trauma? But then it becomes, does their experience differ if they've been exposed to a one-time terrorist event versus exposed to chronic threats of natural disasters? And that's what you have going on in New Orleans. So that Hurricane Katrina wasn't their first hurricane, obviously the most memorable for all kinds of reasons. So we wanted to see, does the nature of the environment make a difference in how somebody experiences it? And it was very different. In many respects, the results were the same in that there were a number of factors that would predict your trauma. If you had a history of traumatic life events, if you came from a trauma background yourself, If you had an insecure attachment style, and I'm trained as an analyst, I'm very interested in attachment. So those who have an insecure attachment are more likely to be impacted by 9-11, as well as those with less experience. So these are factors that we found that played a really significant part.
1: I think it's really interesting that there was kind of little difference depending on the nature of the disaster itself. That was, that's a really interesting way to look at it.
2: Right, and another question that we looked at was, were you currently affected by 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina? So for both of those populations, they were similar. The thing that was more striking about Katrina is that they were both more avoidant around, they demonstrated insecure avoidant attachment styles, more so was predictive of shared trauma. And also, we looked at resiliency, basically what regression models were predicting resiliency. And in terms of that, it was basically if you had lower shared trauma, you were more resilient. But between those two groups, the New Orleans clinicians, they were both more traumatized, but they were also more resilient. And this is the thing that I really find striking because We have to find who are the clinicians that can fare well in these environments. Who are the people that don't get burnt out, that they aren't overwhelmed by their own experience, that they have the capacity to experience whatever is happening to them, but also to help
1: others. I was going to say it would be wonderful to learn what works best so that you can train other folks more effectively.
2: Exactly, exactly. That's the goal of what we're trying to do. If we can identify what they have going on, that helps them to do that. And in New Orleans, if you think about the culture, it it makes perfect sense that they'd be avoidant. I mean, it's the biggest party city you have. So they're like, in some ways, they make merry, so to speak, and that's a way in which they handle what's going on. To them, it's just the norm. They're more braced for it.
1: Right, I was going to say, I would would think that it would have something to do with them kind of having a constant threat as opposed to a one-time, very unexpected terrorist attack. Exactly. They've grown up bracing themselves effectively.
2: Right. Another place where we're going to look at next is in Israel. Because in Israel, in southern Israel, I have colleagues. I have a colleague who had her office destroyed by a Qassam rocket. There was a student that died in that bombing. And for them, it's like a daily threat. If a rocket is coming in, they literally have about 15 seconds to seek shelter to do something about it. So imagine practicing under those circumstances.
1: I can't even fathom.
2: Right, exactly. I mean it's a horrific kind of experience. So I want to see now these are people they've been doing it a long time. And my colleagues particularly there are three that write a lot about it. Raheli Deckel, Orit Nuttman Schwartz and Anihami Baum has written a lot on this topic and they refer to it as shared traumatic reality. Because their sense is it isn't just you're sharing with your client in the confines of the therapeutic setting. Their concern is that it's not only is it chronic, but the entire environment is subject to terrorism at any time. So that, in other words, it goes beyond just the concrete environment. It's really one's perception, one's sense of reality as to what's occurring. So for them, it's clearly in a more dramatic on a much larger scale. And they've done a lot of work where they're both dealing with it themselves as well as helping others.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is such a a relevant topic given all the discourse that we're witnessing around the globe. Absolutely. So this is really wonderful information. Um, What type of changes did clinicians make in their personal and professional lives post-disaster? Well, one of the articles
2: that we had written was, we termed it professional post-traumatic growth. And that was you had a lot of people after this experience, a lot of some really not good things happened and some really good things happened in terms of the self-report that they, that they had from the open-ended questions. And on the personal level, you had some people who decided to get married and then you had people who were saying, oh, I'm so sorry I ever became a therapist. I don't want to just sit and listen to people's problems. You had the whole continuum of responses but professionally, we found that people were doing a better job of taking care of themselves, shorter hours, taking training that they wanted to take. Another thing is around boundaries. Post 9 11, there's a significant shift in boundaries for most clinicians. They find themselves being able to work more intimately with clients, they may be more self disclosing. Certainly, they were about 75% of clinicians self-disclosed about their own 9-11 experience with their clients. I mean, that's a very high number. And in the New York study, we captured more seasoned clinicians. That is our group, our listserv came from NASW. We looked at only people in Manhattan who were in the affected area. And uh, the majority, the average age was around 60. So these were seasoned clinicians, about 26 plus years in the field. And what's striking is many of them had psychoanalytic training. So we ended up capturing the people who were in private practice. The average income was like over $100,000. So yeah, we that kept... stood
1: out to me when I read the article.
2: <laughs> right? Well, anytime I present the New Orleans data, I, I always um, – in New Orleans, they were like, really? Oh, my God. You know, they make so much money. And I'm like, no, that'll get you on a subway here in New York. Like, don't, don't get <laughs> – don't be impressed you know don't be impressed but what's striking for them is that even though they were so seasoned and many of them these are many of them were trained analysts they all said they didn't know what to do they felt they weren't prepared intellectually they didn't have the knowledge they needed and even when they had the knowledge it makes no difference when it happens to you personally so these are the kind of responses we were getting which i think are really striking In other words, when it happens, it's a leveling field. My colleagues and I produced a video series called the Relational Social Work Series, and it's all really about how there's a partnership between you and your client. But nowhere is it more equal than when people are exposed to common threat in this way. So with those clinicians, the changes, they were all being more intimate with their clients so that they were more relaxed in their practice more appreciative of both the limits of our profession as well as what it can do. And I think there was just kind of an existential awareness that came about as a result of 9-11 that I think that has stayed with most people.
1: I was going to say, it doesn't sound like that's too uh, different from a lot of folks' experience who started to reevaluate where they were and what they were doing after 9-11. Exactly.
2: Exactly. A lot of people took it as an opportunity.
1: Yeah, we're all guilty, generally speaking, of trying to make the best of a situation, aren't we?
2: Yes, that is true. I think, too, that something that's important to keep in mind is that as social workers, I think in general, we serve as models of mastery for our clients. Many of us have either known trauma or background, come from families where there's a history of depression, mental illness, substance abuse, sexual abuse. Many of the human frailties, we know, it often draws us to the profession. And I think what happened with 9-11 is that many people, myself included, when you're going through this, what do we do best? We spring into action and we help others. So that the process of helping someone else helps us. That's something that really occurred for a lot of people. Some people were like, I, I'm dealing with my own stuff. I can't help anybody else. And that was the difference with Katrina. In New York, it was the plane flew over the building. But in New Orleans, maybe my home was destroyed. And it's very different. My home was destroyed. I'm not getting significant reimbursement. So many issues to deal with that were very different. So there, uh, clinicians were saying, you've got to take care of your own trauma before you help someone else. So it was very different in New York because it was a discreet, one-time experience. They're better able to use that experience to help others, whereas in New Orleans, they were like, let me take care of my own stuff before I help somebody else.
1: Right. So much more affected daily living for those in Katrina from food and shelter on up. Right. Exactly.
2: And another thing, the timing of when we collected the data, about midway through, the BP oil disaster occurred. <laughs> So, we were curious, was there a difference before and after the oil spill? And sure enough, people were more traumatized after, on the data that we collected after, so that the oil spill did make a difference in a resurgence of shared trauma for people.
1: Yeah, that's no surprise either. Yeah, that's quite amazing. There are a problem. That's for sure down there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we touched on this a bit earlier, but what part does resiliency play in the development of shared trauma?
2: I think there's a big debate in terms of what constitutes resiliency. Is it more kind of constitutional in nature? Is it something you can cultivate? Is it something you can teach, supervise? So there's a lot of kind of debate of how to define it and absence of symptoms versus something else. And when we talk about resiliency, you've got to talk about it vis-a-vis post-traumatic growth because oftentimes what happens following a disaster is that it's not people maintain their, they don't go back to, let's say, a pre-crisis state of functioning, but more they learn from the trauma. They change their cognitive scheme of the world and of themselves changes post-disaster. And that's where you see post-traumatic growth. So with resiliency, it has a lot to do because people who are innately more resilient will be less traumatized. So if you have an ability, if you have an attitude, like I can handle whatever comes my way, okay, if it seems overwhelming, I'll just parcel it out. I'm going to maintain a good sense of humor about it. I'm going to reach out to others for support. Like if you have a certain kind of attitude and stance to anything that comes up, then it's going to be easier for you than somebody who says, oh, my God, if anything happens, I'm not going to be able to handle it. You know what I mean? Somebody that's basically predicting their own negative response it's not going to fare as well. But I think social workers as a group are a very hardy group, but we're also a more traumatized group. That's something Brian Bride talked about in his article. I mean the percent, I believe it was around fifteen percent or so of social workers he found were traumatized. That's a fairly high number. But that's what's striking about us. We can be both more traumatized but also more resilient and also more aware. And to use that awareness to help self and others, I mean, that's what's so wonderful about our profession.
1: I agree. I agree. It's wonderful, I think, that you're looking at both not just the consequences uh, or the ramifications of these disasters, but what we can learn and take away from them to better the field as a whole.
0: Absolutely.
1: And your research is just really interesting, and I really thank you for sharing all this with us. My pleasure. And I look forward to reading future articles. It sounds like you're off to some very interesting places.
2: (laughs) I present a lot all over. I just came back from Sarajevo and uh, where they know it as well. But I'll be happy to make any of the articles available to you and your audience.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And good luck with your research. Okay, thanks.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Carol Tusson discuss shared traumatic stress. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research.
2: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.